Listeners, I know that you sometimes feel like your home is bursting with the boundless energy of your boys. Mine has been for a very long time. We want to tell you about Home Threads, where style meets the wild adventures of raising boys. At HomeThreads.com, you can find a collection of uh, furniture and home accessories designed to meet the needs of your growing boy family. They have everything from durable bunk beds to upscale gaming tables. You can turn your home into an attractive, durable playground, believe it or not. Uh, Janet and I both love their baking dishes. Solid, beautiful, functional. Anything you need for your home, you can likely find on homethreads.com, and we have a discount code for you. Go to homethreads.com slash onboys. You can get a code for 15% off your first order, because every leap, laugh, and loud moment deserves a space that embraces the chaos with style. Home Threads, love where you live. This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink, mom of four boys. And I'm Janet Allison, teacher of many more. Thanks for joining us as we share real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. This episode is brought to you by Haya Health and Building Boys Bulletin. And we'll tell you about those coming up. Do you worry about the quality of your boy's diet? I do. My third son, Adam, stopped drinking milk when he was two. We learned later that he's lactose intolerant. And for years, even now, his primary food group is popcorn. I worry about his nutritional intake and I thought about giving him vitamins, but I was not thrilled with what I saw out there. So many vitamins for kids are filled with sugar and unhealthy chemicals and they're based on out-of-date nutritional guidelines from the 1980s. I wish Haya vitamins had been around then. We recently got some samples of Haya, and these are different. They are made from a blend of 12 farm-fresh organic fruits and veggies, and they don't contain any of the sugar and gummy junk that your kids don't need. My Adam is now 17, so he's a little old for chewable vitamins. I gave him some anyway, and he gives Haya a thumbs up. We've worked out an exclusive offer with Haya Health for these best-selling children's vitamins. This is just for you, our On Boys podcast listeners. Receive 50% off your first order. Just go to HayaHealth.com slash OnBoys and get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. That is HayaHealth.com, H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H.com slash OnBoys. And that full discount will be applied at checkout. And let us know how your kids like their new vitamins. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you know that Jen is an internationally acclaimed writer. She's written for Washington Post, New York Times, and Parents Magazine. And she 
writes for you. She writes blog posts, but you know what she does because she is a writer? She researches. And every Monday morning, I get in my inbox an email from Jen, the Building Boys Bulletin. She gives you the highlights and the links and the resources that you need to be up to date on what your boy needs, what's going on in the news around boys and men. You can't do this yourself. So what I would advise you to do is go to buildingboys.net, that's Jen's website, and subscribe to the Building Boys Bulletin. You will love having this valuable resource in your inbox every single Monday morning. And now this episode of On Boys, which I have to tell you, I am so excited for you to hear. I could say that about every episode we do. I think you're especially going to like this one. Do you have a beloved family pet? Maybe you've adopted a kitten or a puppy as a response to the pandemic. Maybe you've had an encounter with an animal in the wild that still resonates with you. What's with animals and our connection to them and our children's sometimes very profound connection to them? We know that, well, having an animal around just feels good. We know that it gives our kids opportunities to take care of a living being, helping them develop empathy and responsibility. But do we really know what's even deeper below the surface than that? You'll likely recognize our guest today, Richard Lube, as the author of Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder, the book that launched an international movement when he urged us to consider the importance of nature and our connection to being in nature for ourselves and our children. His latest book is Our Wild Calling, how connecting with wild animals can transform our lives and save theirs. In a world and in your home where we seem to be drowning in technology, Lou says our relationships with other than human beings can have a profoundly positive impact on our health, our spirit, and our sense of inclusiveness in the world. Welcome, Richard. Right there. So good to have you here. Thank you. Um, and you are the dad of of two young men. Yeah, and they're getting less young. Less one, young, one, like all one, of us. Yeah, one just turned 39. I can't believe it. And the other one is 33. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've got 35 and 31. And Jen's a little, little younger than we are. But yeah, mine are 23, 20, 17, and 14. So we're, we're I, in the I, thick of it. I don't know how this happens. You know, I, I, I told my wife a while ago that, you know, our first mistake was letting them out of their room. <laughs> we should have bound their feet, you know. It's terrible, terrible parenting advice. Don't fall. But God, they grew up fast. It's, sure it's such do. a cliche. You know, yes, it is, isn't it? As you were doing that intro, Janet, I was thinking about these encounters with animals in the wild, to me, always feel so magical. Because there's a moment, like, you are in their world, and they're tolerating you, and they're letting you be there. And I had an experience just yesterday, which was not me in the wild with this animal, but you know I scuba dive. And uh, one of the friends that we dive with is currently down in Roatan, which is off of Honduras diving. 
and she shared a video of an encounter with an octopus. And to see an octopus in the wild, which I have been fortunate to do, it's, it's like a miracle because there are these creatures that are, they can do things that don't seem physically possible. And it's, it's this moment. Richard, based on all of your research, you know, what is that? Why does that stir us so much and, and make us pause, really? Well, first, this can happen with our pets, too. Um, the, the, the book is not only about wild animals. It's probably mainly about wild animals, but it's also about the dogs we have when we're kids and the, and the two cats my wife and I just got. There were strays. We've already spent $600 at the vet on them. So, uh, and we, and you know, it's, it's just ridiculous. We immediately start calling them our, uh, ourselves, their mom and dad. I mean, what is this? What right? is this? You're the expert. What? Tell us, Richard. Uh, well, right <laughs> what now, is this? right now during the COVID period, you know, the shelters have been, have, uh, don't have many animals in they, they have animals, but they, there's been a run on, mm-hmm. on them and, I, I think this speaks to our loneliness from each other right now, which is mm-hmm. aggravated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also speaks to one of the main themes of the book is not only our loneliness as a species, but specifically our species loneliness. And I'll, I'll get to answering your question here in a second. The medical folks have been studying loneliness, human isolation for at least a decade. And what they've discovered uh, some call it an epidemic of loneliness internationally, not only in the United States, is that uh, human isolation uh, is on par with smoking and uh, with uh, other really uh, aggravating uh, causes of early death. Hmm. Uh, smoking and obesity, which is a big surprise uh, to the researchers. That's been blamed on a lot of things, but you know, we can't blame everything on Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, it's not just Facebook. Right. No. It's not just anti-social no. media. It's um, it's something deeper than that, or I make the case for that. Yes, it's all of those things. It's the fact that the nuclear family is in trouble. The extended family mm-hmm. long ago began to fragment. All of those things mm-hmm. are true. Uh, but I, I make the case in our wild calling that it's, deeply rooted in our species loneliness, literally our loneliness as a species, not just as individuals. And that the farther we have been disconnected or disconnected ourselves from the natural world, the lonelier we get at some Mm. core level. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are desperate not to feel alone in the universe. It's one of our characteristics. So species loneliness would imply to me that we are meant to be connected to these other species around us. We are meant to have maybe relationships sounds like a a strong word, but you know, interactions with dogs, cats, birds. uh, I live in the Midwest, deer, I mean, squirrels, all of these things. Yeah, that's the case that I make. One of the cases that I make in, in the book, you know, this is part of who we are. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Uh-huh. Seriously, yeah. And I spent time with Bigfoot hunters, by the way, and they're a yeah. group of folks. I like them. 
You know, we're in the hotbed up here, Sasquatch, well, in I Portland, know. Oregon. We're, I, we're I like, so long goes through that door behind you. There's <laughs> tracks, <Yeah>. man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but yeah, I've spent time with Bigfoot hunters and they become obsessed. Some of them lose their families. They, what is that? I, I remember talking to a, a Bigfoot hunter. This was the first time it was in Vancouver and it was a long time ago. It's the first time that the academics who study Bigfoot and, and, you know, the, the, the hairy man in the forest myth and all of these things that we carry with us as a species. First time they got together with the actual Bigfoot hunters, guys with guns or the guys with, ah. you know, would track them. Whoa. And of the two kinds of Bigfoot hunters, I know this sounds like a tangent, maybe it is. Of the two kinds of Bigfoot hunters, they, they actually called themselves the kill freaks and the peace freaks. And the kill freaks, kill freaks actually wanted to go out and shoot one and drag it home so they could prove it. Yeah. The peace freaks were very different. And I remember sitting with a young guy who uh, had a big cowboy hat on. And this is the University of Vancouver. And he looked sad after two days of this because they were all arguing. The academics were arguing with the Bigfoot, Bigfoot hunters arguing with each other. And I was sitting with him. <laughs> He looked quite sad. And I said, what's, what's going on? And he said, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. You know, it's just to, and this is a guy that had devoted several years of his young life. Mm -hmm. I said, why? And he said, listen to that. Listen to these people. And I said, okay, if you kept doing it, what would you do if you ran into Bigfoot? Say you entered a clearing. Yeah, there was a Bigfoot standing there. What would you do? He says, well, uh, I said, would you shoot it? No, I wouldn't shoot Bigfoot. Uh, I think that I would just say hello. Hmm. And I would oh. just be there with Bigfoot. Would you take a picture? No, I would not take a picture because nobody would believe me. And they'd say I was crazy. Then why are you doing this? He says, because I just want to meet Bigfoot. You know, why else would we look for intelligent life on other planets when... This, this was making me think of Carl Sagan and that the recording that they sent out to the universe, to the galaxies of that connection. Yeah, one, some famous scientists, one of whom I can't remember his name right now, have warned us that may not be a good idea to find. Yeah. I mean, look what uh, European colonists did to other civilizations mm. that they felt were lesser than they were. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not a good idea. Setting that aside, that represents, I think, this deep, deep species loneliness, this need not to be alone in the universe. Now, obviously, there are religious implications to this. But mm -hmm. actually, the irony is that we're not alone. And leaving religion aside, we're not alone. We're surrounded by what I call in the book a, a great whisper, except we detect it with all of our senses, not just our hearing. It's this great conversation going on around us all the time of birds and the coyote that walks through your backyard and uh, the animals that we run into on our hikes and also our pets who obviously mm -hmm. we're talking to all the time mm -hmm. and they're talking to us all the time. Well, I believe the same is true for wild animals, even if it's just for, for a few seconds. And we can hear or sense or be in that conversation 
It's a two-way conversation, a multi-way conversation, if we pay attention. And when we do, we are less lonely. Mm -hmm. This is a panacea for loneliness, but it's one of the things that I think can make us. And now during the during the pandemic, people are noticing this. You've seen this written about a lot or, or on te- television, on the news and stuff that people are suddenly noticing there's birds outside their window. Yeah, you know, or there's, slowing there's down. Right there, you don't have to go to Yosemite mm-hmm. and they're paying attention. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and I did a piece for the LA Times and op-ed where I, I put out the word on Facebook, uh, tell me about how animals are getting you through the, Mm. the pandemic and I got mm-hmm. all kinds of stories from people that literally had never noticed or seldom noticed the animals right us and they were latching on to these these animals and it was solace they were getting mm-hmm. from this it was you couple- know what my husband and I did at lunch yesterday Janet we sat in the dining room of our new house which is in the country the previous owners had some bird feeders out there and said hey you know you get great birds so Mike has gone all in on this and we sat there and we watched the birds yeah. and it is soothing. It is comforting. You st- And it's, you know, first it's like, Ooh, that's a pretty bird. And then you learn what that bird is. And then you start noticing behavioral patterns. And at least for a little bit, for one, you're not thinking about the pandemic, you know, and mm-hmm. for me, uh, and I think this is true for our boys too, Janet, and as, for all of us, as we go through this pandemic, nature has been very soothing for me through this because I can go outside and nature goes on. And you forget where we're at. Right. Yeah, you know, we're in you a know, pandemic. That squirrel, that squirrel does not care about lowering the curve. No, not no. one bit. That squirrel <laughs> is just busy trying to get that nut before my dog sees it in the yard. <laughs> That's, that's very true. And yeah. people are feeling this. And there's some things, you know, I, the, the other books I've done have been more about children and their relationship with nature and, and, and adults also. And one of the, uh, there was a nonprofit that grew out of Last Child in the Woods, which was my first book, which named Nature Deficit Disorder. It, was, it mm-hmm. coined that phrase, which has entered several languages now. We've noticed that two things are happening. One is that, yes, People are crowding into mm. the parks when they can get into the parks, when it's not shut down. They're just crowding into the park, whether it's urban parks or whether it's uh, national parks or whatever. They're crowding to the, into these places, these natural places in such numbers that they're starting to trash them. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're so unfamiliar with nature. When they get there, they don't really know what to do and how to respect it. Oh. And uh, that's, we've got some work to do on that. We're glad they're getting out, but that's can be a problem. The other thing we're noticing is we did a survey of the members of the Children Nature Network. And what we found is that kids are actually getting out less now than they did before the pandemic, which makes log- logical sense, except that their parents and their older brothers and their sisters and their college age relatives are all getting out there in nature. And they're the ones trashing the place. And it's ironic because children who need it most are getting it less now. And adults, it's a little like um, Halloween. Adults stole Halloween a while back. Yes. I'm not saying adults are, are stealing nature, but we've got to focus on the people who really need it most. Not only that, many of the programs that get kids outdoors, particularly from inner cities and, and all mm-hmm. of that, who need it most, 
they're threatened by the economy right now. Many of them are on the verge or have already gone under. Mm -hmm. We have to save them because there's a trauma going on right now because of COVID. But that, I think, is going to get worse after Mm -hmm. the vaccinations are given. When we start going back to what we consider normalcy. A few years ago, uh, the people in Newtown, Massachusetts, folks Mm -hmm. there, where the kids got killed in the school, shot by- Sandy Hook, yeah. Invited me to go to Newtown and to speak. And I spoke at the little city hall there and I spoke at a nature center. I said, why did you ask me? This is three months after. Mm -hmm. Why did you ask me? They said, because we know that nature is healing. We need this. Why three months later? Because the psychologists tell us that's when the secondary trauma hits. Mm. It's kind of a survivor's trauma. Mm. And I think we're gonna we're gonna see this. I mm-hmm. think mental health issues are gonna be, they're already hugely important, but they're gonna get more important. Mm-hmm. We're gonna need nature more than ever. That's one of the reasons we really have to support these programs to get kids outdoors. Yeah, yeah. I hear from parents all the time how bath time can be such an ordeal. And yet bath time can be really fun. In fact, here in the very cold winter, we use bath time as an activity. Dabble and Dollop has got this dialed in because they have bath products that are not only natural, healthy, free of toxins, all the things we want for our kids, but they're fun. Jen, you said when your boys were young, they loved to make potions. My son, Tyler, had so much fun mixing things together, making potions, recipes. He would have loved Dabble and Dollop's Day at the Beach bath mixing set because it's a collection of soap scents and a little mixing thing, and your kids can combine scents and make their own creations. It is exactly the kind of thing that can turn bath time into a fun, enjoyable, creative endeavor instead of just a fight. And I will say the bubbles have been bow tested in the bathtub and they last. They stay bubbles for a long time. Dabble and Dollop has everything from bath time shampoos, bubble baths, body washes, conditioners, lotions, bath bombs, bath toys and accessories. There's so many things to explore at Dabble and Dollop. Go to dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys to get 20% off your first order. That's dabbleanddollop.com slash onboys, 20% off for being an onboys listener. Um, You talk about this protecting nature, taking care, being, uh, being familiar, being comfortable in nature so that the you know, these people that are going out to the parks know how to be in nature and not trash it, how to take care of it, and how by promoting this love of nature and this connection to the wild that we can do that not out of fear, but that we do it out of love because we have this comfort with it, we're familiar with it. And maybe my question is around how do we get our kids in that place that you're talking about when maybe our the adults are too busy aren't familiar you know it might be hey I grew up in the city and I don't know how to be out in in nature and be comfortable in nature I mean I I work with families all the time and 
there's, you know, we're comfortable going to the city park, but we're not comfortable going out on that hiking trail because there might be wild animals out there. You know, we've got, you know, there's definitely a mythology around mountain lions at where you live. And uh, I know the the video about the bobcat, I'm sure you've seen it, that went viral chasing the um, the guy that was recording. We'll, that, we'll put a link in the show mountain, notes. but a mountain lion. And it was, it was a, yeah, and it was not going to attack him, probably. Exactly. If you Protected. look at the body language, it was it was with its paws. It was saying, "Go away, go yeah. away, yeah. keep going." Yeah, I mean, it's very clear what the animal, what the mountain lion would say, because it had it had cubs. Right, but that and we know that a lot of people look at that and go, "Oh my gosh, another wild animal," and it just you know feeds the feeds the fear rather than the familiarity and connection to, oh, she was protecting her babies. Of course, just mm-hmm. like I would. I mean, you, you strange person <laughs> comes in my house. I'm going to shoo him away, too. Yeah. And that's not to say that lion wasn't dangerous or that if the guy had wandered back into the realm mm-hmm. of the cubs, he wouldn't have been attacked. And, and here you've asked several questions. One one of the things is that I think that safety in nature is highly overrated. That one of the reasons we need nature is because we're not the top dog often in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And that we need that sense, you know, nature excites all of our senses. And some of the people who study the human senses say that we have as many as 30 human senses. They long ago stopped talking about five human senses, mm-hmm. including the sense of humility. And that's one of the mm. things that this, being a, when we have these encounters, like you described watching the octopus and many of the people that are what calling is filled with, filled with stories that, that people told me about, not only their relationships with their pets, but their amazing encounters with, with wild animals, even, even a paramecium. I mean, it doesn't have to be a mountain lion. That sense of wonder and awe is what this excites turns out that a sense of awe is, is directly connected to our health, particularly mm-hmm. our mental health, but also our physical health. We need that. We need that sense of humility. And two, one of the characteristics of situations with, which give, fill us with a sense of awe is that we're out of, their, out of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And the second is that sometimes it's dangerous in the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh-huh. when you said uh, safety in nature is overrated, I agree with you completely. And I think this is so relevant, especially to our boys and especially to our mm-hmm. boys as they are um, navigating their adolescence, because it is totally normal, totally natural for them to feel completely invincible and be very full of themselves at that age. Oh, yeah. um, but to be in an environment where intuitively we still sense like, yeah, so this isn't my world and there are things here that could hurt me. Um, that's humbling and mm-hmm. it, it, it inspires them mm-hmm. to pay attention in a different way and to be in an environment that has some, some risks involved and requires awareness, I think is so healthy for boys' development. Yeah, for a, a book long ago that was published in 2000 called Fly Fishing for Sharks, uh, I wrote this for Simon and & Schuster, and it was published then. I went all over 
America to write about America by going fishing with Americans. And I, oh, wow. and I, and I, and I entered many fishing cultures, different kinds that fish for different fish and different ways and all that. It was mainly the people I was interested in. But one of the first things I did is I went fly fishing for sharks. The book was about all kinds of fish, but I went fly fishing for sharks off the coast of San Diego, about 12 miles out in an 18 foot aluminum boat with an ex-grunge ex rocker who <laughs> was becoming very good at fly fishing for sharks and now has become famous among fishermen. He's got his own show on Sportsman's Channel. At that time, nobody had heard of him particularly. A great guy, his name is Conway Ballman. And I took my older son, who was 14 then, who was Perfect. starting to wear black. And he was starting to have that thing on his shoulder and, you know, too good for everything. And, you know, um, we were out there uh, and the shark started, he throws out chum and the sharks, sharks start surrounding us. This is where the upwell of, of water creates a feeding zone for yes. sharks. And we were literally being, what this guy does is he gets up on the transom of the boat and he, and he casts literally a fly that looks like a chunk of meat. But he literally casts this fly to the most aggressive sharks that are there. Oh my and, and this is an 18 foot yeah. boat. You know, the, the With water, three people in it at this point. <laughs> the water is like two feet below the edge of it. And, and I look back at Jason, who has moved himself up to the front of the boat. We're at the back of the boat. I've never seen his eyes so wide. Believe me, he was not wearing black during those moments. Yeah. And, and you know, nothing kind of gets your attention like fly fishing for sharks. And we did, and he caught a shark. He caught a fly. And we, it was all catch and release, believe me. This guy yeah. catches mako sharks, big sharks. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's all catch and release. And he's very careful with them. It's marvelous hooks and all of that. But it's an Listeners, event. I wish you could see our faces right now. <laughs> Especially Jen. So Jen, as, as our listeners may know, Jen's son is a big time fisherman for bass, I think. Yeah, I have and other two things, that but were... like tournament fisherman level. Yeah. So they're gonna so love I've this had, story. I have had so many conversations about fishing over the years. And like I I knew this was a, a good thing for my boys. It got them out of the house, it got them in nature. It was a, a passion. I mean, anytime a kid has a passion, but this is a whole new level. <laughs> Wow, I can't right. wait to tell Tyler about this. Yeah. And by the way, I do a couple chapters in that book about, I joined a, a, a bass fishing tournament on Lake Erie, a smallmouth bass, and uh, had a great time. They were terrific. I also joined a, a bass tournament to write about the, the people fishing in Texas. And it was the lesbian bass fishers of Texas who were by far the best anglers that I met. And they were great fun to be with they were that's my favorite chapter of the book and uh yeah you know and fishing you know it's it's ambivalent and this is one of the things too about introducing kids to nature or ourselves is that there are a lot of moral questions a lot of ethical questions yeah. about fishing. and um i still grapple with them because i still fish with my younger son who really did become a hardcore fisherman became better than i was when early teens and it later ended up being a fly fishing guide on Kodiak Island in Alaska dealing, oh, wow. 
dealing with Alaskan brown bears, protecting his clients from them. And we still fish, but he's become a vegan. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. So how do you write? So, wow. But we're very careful. We always use barbless hooks. It's catch and release, but that is not the most moral way to fish. Mm -hmm. uh, the most moral way to fish probably is uh, catch as many as you're going to eat that day and then stop. Mm -hmm. um, and this is an ongoing discussion. If it wasn't for the bond I have with my son, I probably related to fishing. I probably would have stopped a, a while back. Mm -hmm. But I still like doing it. Yeah. I was, I, th I thought you were going to say when you said the moral way to fish is fishing like my dad used to fish, which would be we would go out all day and and actually it was such a bond with him like you're talking about with your boys as i didn't want to fish but i would go out in the boat with him and row around and he would fish but you know he never caught anything so that was kind of his way of morally fishing because he never had any success but but we had time together even though we never really talked but we were out together in this boat and in nature and that was a lovely way to bond with him. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, a lot, a lot of single mothers have sought out men to teach their kids to. Now, why men? I don't know. Because the fastest growing cohort of fly fishers are women. Hmm. And, um, but, you know, there's a sense that this is more of a masculine thing. Yeah. It's really not. But, I, I you know, the... Uh, there are people now that will fly fish uh, with a, not only a barbless hook, but they cut off the hook. And they, they do that. They literally fly fish in order for the rise of the fish to bite mm -hmm. the thing and for the tug, just the tug. And I interview a guy, <sighs> I, I write about a guy in, 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 last, in uh, Fly Fishing for Sharks who talks about that. He's one of the premier people who teaches people a nature connection uh, and he takes people out into the forest and teaches them bird language and they become changed because of this but he talked about the tug he spent a lot of time with um, uh, a tribe in uh, in africa um, and he said that they talk about the tug i thought he said the tuggy when i was interviewing him and i uh, I think I wrote that in the book, but he says, just the tug. And what they mean by that is that they can be out in the bush, in the, in the forest, and they can feel an animal coming. They can feel a tug right in their solar plexus, right <laughs> around their heart, right below their heart. There's a specific, specific place. And they're out there in order to feel the tug. And they would laugh at him because he would get scared. He thought there was a, a lion coming. They said, no, there's no tug. <laughs> you have to feel wow. the tongue to know that a line is coming. So, wow. um, you know, we've been doing this for, as a species for a long time. We know how to do this more than we think we do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and we see that in, you know, then we bring it back from the wilds of Africa and, and fly fishing for sharks back into our homes. And, you know, our kids longing for that first pet of a hamster, uh, you know, my kids at Christmas one year wanted fish and I was like, 
fish. We're not having fish in my house. So it was so cool. We got this, these two little guppies in this little cube and they were so happy to have this fish and watch this fish. And, and one of them actually lived for a extraordinarily long time. Mm -hmm. And, and I was like, what, what's happening? But, but that, but part of then the cycle and what brings us into connection is the fish dies. Then what do you do? Or the, the hamster in the classroom dies and then what do you do and then then it's it's giving them those lessons of of the circle of life and um having the 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 funeral and the flowers and the ceremony around the passage of an animal and it's call it good practice for when humans around us pass and that 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 um emotion and that involvement can just foster that deeper connection to our families, but, but from coming from animals and so helping them develop their empathy and, uh, and care for animals. I I would love you to talk about a little bit about how uh, animals are being used in mental health arenas more we see, you know, in any airport, there's, wow, all of a sudden, all these emotionally, emotional assistance animals. And can you say more about that and how it's brought into that field? Yeah, I, I, I write about that quite a bit in uh, Our Wild Calling. Um, uh, it turns out that animal-assisted therapy is probably the fastest-growing form of, of therapy in the, in the country. It's a little bit new. We've been doing it for a long time with dogs and horses. Uh, now farm animals are being used more. Uh, and, uh, and I make the case in the book too, that this is one of the things that wild animals can give us too. And there are uh, what are called eco-psychologists who are beginning mm-hmm. to use uh, contact with wild animals as a form of therapy. As, as part of a, a deeper nature therapy. Um, it, it, when I wrote Last Child in the Woods, there were about 60 studies that I could, I could find that I could cite, uh, both on the disconnection of children from nature, but also on, more importantly, on the benefits of nature. This was in 2005. A lot of these were on mental health, uh, but there were only 60. This was an area, the impact of, of, of nature on our health mental, physical, and cognitive functioning that have been virtually ignored by the academic world. Mm-hmm. 60 studies, really. Right. And um, since then, um, if you go to the Children Nature Network website, which is childrenandnature.org, you'll see uh, a thousand abstracts of a th- over a thousand studies oh, wow. coming in 10, 15 a, a month, somewhere from somewhere in the world. It's now become a growth industry with the, uh, studying this. So animal therapy is part of this. Most of the research, though, of those thousand studies has been done on the impact of, of green on us, on, on trees, on mm-hmm. the, the view of the a walk through the park and the trees. All that. Now, animals are secondary to that. There's kind of an assumption that you'll run into animals, but it's not very specific in most of these studies. Now there's more, finally, there's some more animal-specific studies occurring still very little on the impact of wild animals on us 
So that's why so much of the evidence in this book is anecdotal, people telling stories, mm -hmm. which is really the best way to impart uh, this, this topic. I've been going to a local nature trail. I live in a small town in Wisconsin. We, it's a one mile trail through the woods that a family donated to the community long ago. But I've learned that if I go around dusk, there is an extremely good chance that I'm going to see deer in that one clearing because there's deer that hang out in that woods. And then if I'm there right as, you know, night is starting, dark is starting to fall, I will hear two owls up in these trees over here and sometimes I can spot them and so it's it's kind of become this thing I like to go at that time of day because I am I going to see them today am I going to have that encounter and I can't really verbalize why that is a beneficial thing but I know it's a healthy thing for me and it's helping me stay sane and balanced yeah and people in the book some of the stories are exactly that they pass a corner every day on their walk to work and they see a particular bird and it mm -hmm. can go years some of these people mm -hmm. it becomes a relationship and, yeah uh, th that's extraordinarily Im important um i i should say that you asked earlier about the what is it mm -hmm. about this connection um uh that turns out to be the question of the book what is that yeah what yeah. is that we feel um, I'll tell you three quick stories to illustrate this. One of them is about an octopus. We brought up oh, the octopus. I love octopus. Uh, there is, by the way, a great Netflix yes. uh, uh, thing now, uh, film now on a guy and an octopus. This is not that story. My, my, the story I tell came out before that story. And it's from a, a, an oceanographer named Paul Dayton at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in La Jolla, California. Great guy. He, I think he's around 80 now. And he tells this story about when he was a, a student at the University of Washington. And he was on the um, uh, bottom of the ocean. And uh, he was uh, collecting samples. He was studying starfish. Uh, he suddenly felt a, a big presence come over him. Mm. He, you know, this is usually not a good thing. Yeah. It stopped. <laughs> and when you're in the ocean, you are him. Yeah. You're yeah. acutely so, aware that's not your world. You right. are not in your environment. Right. So he looks up carefully from one eye and he sees a big tentacle coming down. And then he looks over here and sees another one. <laughs> and then he looks up and he realizes right above him is um, one of those giant Pacific octopuses with a 12 foot wingspan. Oh my goodness. And, and at the risk of anthropomorphizing, and I make the case, by the way, that anthropomorphizing is high, highly underrated. <laughs> yeah, at the, at, at the risk of that, he said the octopus decided I was a clam and it came down and got me. And it did. It wrapped oh. him up in its arms. He said people think that the arms of a tentacles are soft or anything, but he couldn't budge him. Right about then, he realizes he's almost out of air. <laughs> and um, he does this thing that uh, prey often does, that the gazelle does in the, the mouth of the lion. He, he relaxed. It's instinctive. And right then, the octopus relaxed a little bit. And so Paul, with the last strength he had, pushed off the bottom of the ocean. And he started going up and up and up with the octopus still wrapped around him. 
big yeah. octopus. Yeah. And he's going up and up and up. And as he's going up, you can feel the octopus's uh, razor sharp yeah. coming around his neck until he's looking right into the octopus's eye. And Paul said, kind of laughing, again, at the at risk of anthropomorphizing, he said, I think that the octopus and I made our non-aggression pact. Hmm. And right then the octopus released him just a little bit more and they hit the surface and Paul ripped off his mask and he's gasping for air because he's out of air. And yeah. he looks, looks down into the water. The octopus is still there looking at him and they're making eye contact and it lingered there. And then finally the octopus turns and starts going down, down, down into the dark. What does Paul do next? This is the best part of the story. He puts his mask back on and he dies after the octopus. Goes back down. And he chases it back down. And he told me this last detail. I didn't get this into the book because he didn't tell me it the first time. He said, <laughs> as they went down, they spiraled each other. And uh, then he ran out of air again and he's up on the surface gasping again. I said, why in the world would you do that? Why? And he said, um, I don't have a good explanation. Um, he used the word spiritual, and this is a hardcore scientist. He's one of the most respected mm -hmm. among oceanographers. But he said, what I, what I can say, uh, even though that makes him uncomfortable to use that word, he said, um, I didn't want those moments to end. Oh, wow. And he felt something change. He felt something, a connection that he can't explain. That's yeah. what I heard again and again from people. To, mm -hmm. Pets also, a woman in Toronto told me she walked into the living room once and their family had a big dog named Jack. And she saw her son stretched out on the floor, six-year-old son with his arm around Jack on the floor. They're both laying there. And she heard her son say, mommy, I don't have a heart anymore. And she said, what are you saying? And he said, my heart is in Jack. Oh. Oh. Yeah. That, that permeability, which we felt with people. Mm -hmm. We feel it with our pets, but I make the case that we feel that with wild animals too. Last yeah. story. I was on a lake in my boat, which has a quiet electric motor. One morning, early morning, nobody's there. And I look at the shore and there's two, what I think are... Um, um, turkey vultures on the shore mm -hmm. eating a dead fish. And so I ease up real quietly because I want to look at them closer. And I get within 20 feet of them. And they're not vultures. They're two really big um, golden eagles. And you don't usually get within 20 feet of golden eagles. Uh, and for what seemed like forever, the golden eagles would lean down and take a bite and then look up at me. And then mm. lean down again, take another bite of the fish, and then look up. And it went on and on and on. When I say it seems like seemed like forever, one of the things that these stories that people tell often have is an element of uh, altered states. One of the altered states is that time either stops or bends. Mm -hmm. uh, Paul felt that with the octopus. Another mm -hmm. altered state is that uh, a sense of spatial size disappears since that you know watch an anthill for a while and you'll see that yeah your sense of scale disappears or changes 
So I was looking at those eagles and I, again, I felt what Paul felt, something changed. And I, I can't speak for the eagles when they were looking at me, making that eye contact. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were just trying to figure out if I was able. You know, I can't. Yeah. But I felt something change. And it wasn't in the eagles and it wasn't really in me. It was between us. It was between us. I went back and told my younger son, the, the fisherman, I knew he had the fishing gene when he was three because I caught him fishing in the humidifier. <laughs> I told Matthew, who was home from college, about this. And I ended up saying, I, I, whoever I say I am, Matthew, I'm not. Whoever I was in those moments is who I actually am. Oh, that's beautiful. And I don't have the language to describe that. This is beyond verbal language. Mm-hmm. Yes. This is in that older language that I talk about in the book. I call it the older language that we share with many creatures and have yeah. as long as we've been on this earth. So what is that? So the, the best written explanation that was already written that I could find was about the relationship between people. And it was by uh, a great intellectual called uh, Martin Buber. I always have to be careful not to say Justin Bieber. Uh, and <laughs> Different he, people. He wrote a great um, essay called I and Thou. And again, it was about people. And what he would say is that you and I don't really exist. Not really. What exists is right here. It's between us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Literally between us is the relationship. And he meant relationship in a different sense than we use that word usually. He thought of it as a kind of electricity that some people call God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that's what these people felt. Yeah. That's what they described in story after story after story, whether it was with a dog or an encounter with an octopus or a mountain lion or, uh, you know, the raccoon behind their house. Yep. It, again and again and again, people tell these stories. And they tell these stories with a sense of awe and wonder. And it's not just the apex predators. They're talk, telling these stories with the smallest. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's that place that we can't explain. As you said, you know, we don't have the words for it. And yet it feels and call it spirit, call it God, call it, you know, whatever but it is in that place of, there are no words for this. It's, there are ha- stories it's a feeling. For it, though. There's yeah. stories yeah. for it, absolutely. One of, the, one of the things I hope that the Arwa Calling encourages is for families to tell stories to each other mm-hmm. about the encounters they've had when they were uh, with animals, whether they were, when it was, even if it was 50 years ago, grandparents telling their kids about yeah. that time. and. Now, when we go out, if we have an, even if it's an animal that crosses the road in front of our car, there's a story there sometimes. Mm-hmm. And to tell these stories at the dinner table. Yeah. Um, John Young, that I mentioned before, who teaches Nature Connection, he calls this story catching. And that's a phrase that's, that's translated from the Bushmen that he spent time with in Africa. They call it storytelling. We've done this as long as we've been on the planet. Our ancestors would come home from the hunt or from whatever, and they would gather around the campfire and they would tell animal stories about the encounter they had that day. Sometimes they would uh, act out the story. They would dance the story as the animal. They would become the animal. And uh, that's one of the traits of these stories, these encounters, is that we can become those animals. Mm -hmm. And when we do, 
For instance, my encounter with the eagles on the shore. During those moments, there's absolutely no possible way to feel lonely in those moments. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons it, it relieves us now during the pandemic. It gives us solace. We hear parents all the time, Janet, worrying about, you know, their kids and school and academics and reading and writing. We humans have been telling stories for millennia. Before we had language, we were telling stories. So when you give your boys an opportunity to, quote unquote, waste time out in nature or simply uh, stare at the anthill for way longer than you might want to pay attention to the anthill, they're learning. They are mm. touching into something very deep, very primal. There's science there. In the telling of the story, there's language development. All of these things that we've made so complicated, in some ways, our boys come into the world already knowing. And it is on us, the grown-ups, to slow down and to respect this innate knowledge that our children have about the importance of nature and connection. And Richard, thank you so much for all the work that you have done over the years to remind us all of that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for, yeah. for what you do. And thank you for your stories today. I'm just all like soft and gooey over here because it's just <laughs> like, and I got to go, I got to get outside. I, I need to go look <laughs> at some birds. And and it's just such a good reminder that no matter where you are, if you're living in an apartment in the city or you happen to have, you know, mountains out your back door, that the littlest encounters can be so profound. So thank you so much for joining us today, Richard, and for all of your, your wisdom that you have shared over the years through your many, many books, and you have changed lives through oh, well, this that's, work. That's very kind of you, and thanks for what you do. Hoping that you've enjoyed those stories as much as we did. Richard Louv is just such a marvel and such a good reminder of how we are connected in the world. And I wanted to pop on and just say, don't forget about your child's health. And Haya Health has the vitamins that will help him be strong to be out in nature. HayaHealth.com slash onboys for that discount. And there is the Building Boys Bulletin. Go to Jen's website, buildingboys.net, and subscribe. You will not be sorry. All right. Love you guys. We love our listeners so much. And uh, if you like this episode, if you like this podcast, do us a favor. Tell a friend. Thanks. Thanks for joining On Boys. Real talk about parenting, teaching, and reaching tomorrow's men. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.